looking at a remarkable idea. An idea that has intrigued and attracted and literally thrilled thousands upon thousands of men, women, and children. And you, my friends, are about to witness this idea become a reality. For this is the story of the miracle sea in the desert. The freedom of speech is being taken. Say it, sell it. Anything you practice, you'll get good at. And welcome to a brand new life, to a brand new day, all the way from the wastelands of California. My name is Michael, and I'm a mere figment of your imagination. I look forward to once again serve you those sounds of salvation. First time listeners, turn on, tune in, and drop out. This is a very different kind of show, a place where we don't feel so alone. Let us chase away the light no matter what you at home choose to believe. I do admire you for your curiosity. Live and direct right now on the TuneIn Radio app. Search End of Days and you'll find the 24-7 network or go to michaeldeacon.com for any episode you might have missed. My guest today on this very special Afternoon Delight edition of the Michael Deacon program is Michael Shermer. Dr. Michael Shermer is the founding publisher of Skeptic Magazine, a monthly columnist for Scientific American and a presidential fellow at Chapman University where he teaches Skepticism 101. He is the author of New York Times bestsellers, Why People Believe Weird Things, and The Believing Brain, Why Darwin Matters, The Science of Good and Evil, The Moral Arc. His new book is Heavens on Earth, The Scientific Search for the Afterlife, Immortality, and Utopia, Michael regularly contributes opinion, editorials, essays, and reviews to the Wall Street Journal, the Los Angeles Times, Science, Nature, and other publications. Once again, thank you, ladies and gentlemen, for allowing me into your hearts and into your minds. Here we are again. Hello, boys and girls. Thank you to those listening here in America and those who listen outside of America. Thank you so much for your great support. Now, let's get right to him right now. Hi, Michael. Thanks for having me. I'm doing well. Thank you. Very good. And I'm so glad you're finally here, Michael. It's taken such a long time to bring you onto the program. Oh, it did? I didn't realize that. Okay. Well, here I am. <laughs> oh, no doubt. Well, I meant in, in a way I've been. Yeah, no, no, I'm just kidding. Yeah, I've been meaning to reach out to you in, in other words, but. Yeah, no problem. For sure. So, so how are you, Michael? Everything's good out there on your side of the woods. Uh, well, I'm in California. I think you said you're in California, right? Oh, yeah. I'm, well, I'm out here in the desert in El Centro. It's very, very hot. You don't want to be out here. Oh, you're in El Centro. Oh, man. It's a death yeah. trap. Yeah. No, I'm in Santa Barbara. It's a little slice of paradise here. Oh, my God. I think it's above 80 where uh, they basically shut the city down and everyone goes to the beach. I know. I'm so jealous. My home away from home, right where you're at. And, Michael, I have to say I've enjoyed... Your endless appearances in the media, of course, all your fantastic TED Talks that you've done, and your books are incredible, in my opinion. Well, thank you. Yeah. I appreciate that. Yeah, no doubt. And before we jump into all sorts of topics here, can you tell the audience just a little bit about yourself, Michael? Oh, well, I'm the publisher of Skeptic Magazine and, and the director of the Skeptic Society. We're a 501c3 nonprofit science education organization, and we investigate any and all claims that science can have something to say about. Um, that's my normal day job. Then on the side, I write a monthly column for Scientific American, 
211 consecutive months. And I'm a professor at Chapman University in Southern California, City of Orange, uh, where I teach one day a week a class called Skepticism 101, How to Think Like a Scientist. So science is my thing. I write science books. The latest is Heavens on Earth, but the scientific search for the afterlife immortality utopia. My previous book was The Moral Arc, um, which had to do with moral progress. So that's kind of the, the, the long and the short of it. No doubt. And I do like to go to the roots with all my guests that I bring on here. And uh, Michael, I must say, how old were you exactly when you first started to question religion? Was it uh, a parent or who was it exactly? Oh, well, I wasn't raised religious. My my folks were just not religious. They weren't secular or atheist or anything. Like that. They weren't anything. Uh, they never went to college or anything like that. So it was just a... A, uh, a, you might call a religious neutral home. And in the early seventies, when I was in high school, the uh, kind of nascent born again movement was afoot in America and it swept through our community, Southern California. I was raised in La Crescenta area and, uh, sort of a suburb of Los Angeles. And, and the, the whole Jesus movement was non-denominational. It wasn't affiliated with any particular religion at all. It was just, um, a movement to read the Bible and kind of understand what God wanted for us and so on. But it was definitely Christian in terms of accepting Jesus as your Savior and all that. So I got into that uh, in 1971, and I was a born-again evangelical Christian for um, seven years or so. I went to uh, college from high school to Pepperdine University, which is a Church of Christ school in Malibu. And and I took courses in the Old Testament and the New Testament and the life of Jesus and the writings of C.S. Lewis and went to chapel two days a week, although that was required. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, I was totally into it. I, I would witness door to door because that's what you're supposed to do as an evangelical. And, um, ultimately I wanted to be a college professor. And to do that, you have to have a PhD and have a PhD in theology. You have to, at least at the time, master Hebrew, Greek, Aramaic, and Latin, and I could barely get through Spanish, so I realized my <laughs> my skill set was not conducive to that. So. Not up to par. <laughs> yeah, I I switched to um, psychology. I was interested in that uh, also, and that introduced me to the scientific method. And in graduate school, I got um, you know a lot of scientific training, and and also in graduate school, I wasn't surrounded by believers. And at the time, you know, atheism wasn't a thing at all. No one ever really talked about God or religion or anything like that. It just wasn't a thing. And I just dropped my faith. Uh, I just, the problem of evil was substantial for me. I didn't think that Christians had a good, or you know, theologians had a good answer for the problem of evil. Michael, yeah, I, I can't believe you turned your back on God. <laughs> I did. How dare you? Well, turned my back. I just stopped believing that. Uh, I'm still here. My back is still here. <laughs> and, uh, yes. you know, if God wants to provide proof or whatever, uh, maybe I'll find out in the next life. If there is one, that's fine. I'm, I'm not closed to the idea. It's no doubt. Just, uh, that, that's I, what I like about you, Michael, that you are in, in some ways a little open-minded more so than some skeptics out there. And, you know, Michael, I've, I've had my share of experiences that were very unusual that I can't really explain myself, but, you know, I don't really go around thinking that science can't fully explain some of the things that I've experienced. That's right. We can explain a lot. And, and the more science advances, the more we can explain. But, of course, the uh, we don't know what we don't know. So there's a lot um, that we have to stay open-minded about just because we don't know what we don't know. And in my 
case, I tend to just say it's okay to say I don't know and leave it at that. You don't have to construct a whole worldview involving the supernatural and the paranormal and things outside of nature, and you can just leave it at that. My latest column, by the way, in Scientific American is on this very subject. It's called um, – it has to do with the Mysterians. The Mysterians are people that believe that there are certain mysteries that can never be explained. And I put three into that category, consciousness, free will, and God. And Absolutely. And it's not that I'm saying we just don't know yet, but, you know, someday we'll figure it out. I think ultimately the way the problems are presented, the mysteries are presented, make them insoluble. Uh, for example, consciousness, so-called hard problem of consciousness, that, that is what it's like to be something else or what it's like to be yourself. It, and the problem is, is how how would I know what it's like to be you? Or in a more famous uh, thought experiment by um, Thomas Nagel, what's it like to be a bat? You, Correct, you can't yeah. possibly know what it's like to be a bat. You'd have to have sonar and all the neural equipment to run it and huge ears and, and the sound system and wings and so on. At some point, if you bolted all those onto your body and brain, you would just be a bat. You would not be a human wondering now knowing what it's like to be a bat. And same thing, I can't know what it's like to be you or vice versa. Because it, it, and the problem is that it's yeah, well, based you, on this false yeah, premise that sure based on this false premise, there's a, there's a little homunculus inside your head looking at the screen that you <laughs> you see, and that I can my little homunculus can leap out of my skull into your skull and see what you're looking at. Right. And that that's not at all what it's like. Yeah, I was, I was just going to add that we do not see through each other's eyes, so we can't really know what one is perceiving. And, you know, I could go in through all sorts of examples of this, but we, that might cause me some trouble here. So I, I won't mention that, but <laughs> yeah, see, now you want to know. I, I'll, I'll tell you off air what I'm talking about. I, I just don't want to further upset uh, the audience here. And one of those things I can say, however, is when I brought in uh, Lawrence Krauss here on the program, my audience was not very happy. Lots of them are full believers of, of many of these things that we'll be talking about. A lot of the things that you cover in your book, uh, Heavens on Earth, which is a fascinating book. Uh, well done, Michael. I just, I, re- I read that whole thing very, very quickly. I was surprised. Oh, thank you. You're the one. Okay. Wow. Fantastic. <laughs> yeah, it was a really good book. And um, well, it's an interesting topic. I think everybody's considered it, anyone who's conscious and self-aware, you know, that, well, maybe this will all come to an end. And as you know, I start off with the, the problem that we, we can't actually envision what it's like not to be alive because to envision anything, you have to be alive. Correct. So that sets up something of a paradox. Indeed. And going going back to just being a skeptic, um, have you personally faced any sort of attack since you're so out there, Michael? And I asked uh, Lawrence the same thing. Um, talking about religion, politics, uh, it can be very dangerous. It's something that gets uh, the people really talking. Um, less so from religious people, more so from political people. When I pu- when I comment publicly on anything, my column in Scientific American has a million readers, so I, g- I get a lot of feedback. Most religious people I find are pretty respectful. They're nice. Um, even when I completely disagree with them, they you know they listen. Um, when I talk about politics, you know, whatever the position is, pro-choice, pro-life, pro-gun control, less gun control, whatever, um, the other side uh, is pretty vicious. I mean, uh, politics, I think, brings out the worst in people more than religion. They say you shouldn't talk about politics and religion at dinner. Right. I find, I find, I find religions okay. 
if you're respectful. I find it more difficult for people to talk about politics, no matter how respectful you are about it, uh, without getting upset. Um, maybe it's the climate that we live in now. I don't know. Things are more sensitive, uh, perhaps. I don't know. But um, it's an I, interesting... I've never had death threats, for example. Okay, I mean, good, some, good. Some people get death threats. I've never had a death threat. Um, you know, but I don't go after Islam, for example, that can bring down a lot of hate on your head. I don't discuss Islam much at all. And, uh, and the people I criticize, you know, it's mostly like theologians or something, which are the nicest people in the world, even if you disagree with them. So that's not likely to bring down a lot of scorn on my head. And um, in regards to politics, it's almost in the last couple of years, we've seen politics almost becoming uh, the new religion for some of the individuals out there. I think so, yes, particularly on the left. Um, it's become kind of a secular religion in which you're – well, what we're looking at here is deep moral values by which people define themselves. And when your deep moral values or foundational values are challenged, you naturally you know, want to circle the wagons, put up the walls, and defend yourself. That's that's normal human psychology. Uh, and I think it's it's made worse – by the increased polarization of politics since the 90s. We know, for example, from polling surveys that the center has shrunk. That is, the independent voters, people in the center, people, the undecided voters, that percent has gotten smaller while the two ends, far left and far right, have gotten larger just in terms of how people self-identify. So that in part leads to the explanation of why we see such polarization. I think talk radio, um, Fox News, uh, you know, whatever, just take your pick. You know, they, they tend to, um, demonize the other side. So it's not, it's just, it's not just that the other side is wrong. They're, they're immoral. They're evil for believing whatever it is they believe. And that's what leads people to dial up their moral modules to 11 and get, uh, outraged by whatever somebody is saying. Yeah. People get very aggressive when it comes to uh, politics. We've been seeing this more and more throughout the years, but I must admit, Michael, it, it has been Completely fascinating and entertaining the last 10 years or so in politics. It has, yes. Well, our first black president uh, was certainly a bit of moral progress, in my opinion. Um, and, you know, a lot of people on the left feel that Trump was a huge step back. We'll see. Uh, I it's, think not it's not over. It's not over. It's not over. The test of our checks and balances in our constitution that, uh, you know, things will keep rolling along. I'm, I'm pretty confident that in, in, in 2020 or 2024, whenever he's gone and the next one's in that, you know, we'll still be here. Things will still be cruising along pretty yeah. well. And no. I could be wrong, but yeah. you know, I'm, I'm, I'm reasonably confident we have enough checks and balances there to keep the ship afloat. And by the way, Michael, I'm not a Republican or a Democrat or any of these things. I'm not accepted by any of those sides to be perfectly honest with you. Um, I, I really dislike uh, most political parties out there, to be honest with you. Most of them lie and deceive, and you know how that game goes. Yep, it's it's troublesome. I, I'm currently calling myself a classical liberal uh, in the the sense that the founding fathers had people like Jefferson and Madison and Hamilton, you know, that believe in certain basic uh, rights and small government and self-reliance and personal responsibility and these sorts of things. Not, uh, I used to call myself a libertarian, but libertarianism oh. is too yeah, – that's my little one. Oh, my goodness. A, a little two-year-old guy, yeah. yeah. He, I'm going to keep my, that in, by the way. That was, that that's was awesome. That's okay. No, that, that's all good, yeah. I like that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So um, 
you know, so there, you know, I'm more of an issues person, you know, like yeah, no I'm, doubt. I'm pro, I'm pro choice, for example, but barely, you know, I think an abortion is taking a human life. It is, um, it's not murder because it's not a legal person yet, but it is killing. And I, we should acknowledge that in the same way that we acknowledge capital punishment is killing or just war is killing. You know, there, there are circumstances in life in, in society where we've decided it's legal to take another life. And at the moment, abortion is one of those. And I, I think as an option for reproductive choices, it's it's good to have for uh, uh, women's rights um, of controlling their own reproductive rights, but exactly, not, not yes. frivolously so. I think, you know, it, it's the kind of thing that should be taken very seriously. And yeah, I'm glad so you mentioned that. You just take an issue by issue. I mean, some conservatives would look at me and go, yeah, yeah, that guy's a conservative because, you know, small government, lower taxes, personal responsibility. Yeah, yeah. But then, you know, if I say, well, we need some gun control and I'm barely pro-choice and then wait a minute. So the labels, conservative, liberal, Republican, Democrat, they're too loaded. Very much say. so. Very much so. I, I hate to label myself even, Michael. And I'm right. sure you're the same way. Yep. Exactly right. Yep. So labels are. Labels are problematic. Yeah, and by the way, I'm glad you brought up abortion. We won't get too too far into that, but that seems to be a topic of discussion that has gone away. That hasn't really been the main driving focus of what we see. Uh, we see, and I, I guess you could see the say the the mainstream media. We we don't see that sort of topic being pushed right now. Uh, more, I think it'll come back now because so? uh, with um, uh, the Supreme Court just. This Kennedy announcing today that he's going to retire at the end of July, and then Trump's going to appoint another probably um, traditionalist, uh, originalist constitutional um, justice uh, that that could that could swing a vote if the Roe v. Wade uh, case came up for challenge. It would have to go through several courts and on appeal, end up at the Supreme Court. And if it did, it's possible it could go. It could be repealed five to four, which would just mean returning. Abortion rights to states to decide, not not the federal government. Um, so it's anyway, it's it could it could be back in the news. Yeah, we'll see what happens. And by the way, that reminds me, uh, Ben Shapiro has been all over the place, and he was just talking about something like uh, very much like this, if if I recall correctly, just today on television. And matter of fact, you were on his show not that long ago. I was. Yeah, Ben's an interesting guy. He's I was. Fast. He's a very interesting guy. He seems a little wound up too tight at times. Yeah, he's got a lot of energy. He's a young guy. He's only 34 years old. Yeah, he's super <laughs> young. Yeah. I, I really do. Yeah, I really do like him, but yeah, he's very entertaining. Um, I like his energy, but sometimes I feel perhaps he's kind of complicating something that doesn't really need to be complicated too much. It could be. Yeah. It depends you know what I'm topic. talking about, right? Yeah. Uh, y- oh, yes. He, uh, well, you know, all these public intellectuals, um, who are commenting daily on, uh, political events, they, they have to fill hours of time, uh, hours of airtime. That's true. Uh, and that's why, you know, sometimes when you, when people pick, uh, um, excerpts from something Rush Limbaugh said or Hannity said or something. It's like, particularly on radio, you know, these guys have three or four hours a day to fill. They're That's bound true. to something that, you know, they misspoke or whatever. Yes. And, and uh, you know, it's, we have to remember this is, it's entertainment first. They have to sell commercials. And, yeah, uh, it's, it's the advertising, the yeah, it's the advertising business. So I, I do wonder sometimes when, when, when they say something, do they really mean that or is that just part of the, uh, you know, driving up the clicks. Oh, yes, of course. 
Yeah, there, there's different things people say public uh, publicly than they do uh, privately, as you know, Michael. Yep, that's right. Yeah, so, you know, I'm, I'm glad that you're aware of that sort of issue because I tell lots of people out there that, uh-oh, we have a, a 415 going on out there. There we go, my A little bit of a battle. Wife's, that's okay. My wife's taking my little guy out now. He's upset he wants to play with me. <laughs> a 415 is a fight, by the way. Oh, for, for those who oh, don't know. Okay. okay, I didn't know that. <laughs> Code talk there, cop talk for okay. for the the police out there who listen in. My god, how scary. Yeah. But yes, uh Ben Shapiro, I do like him, a very intellectual individual. Um some of the things he was telling you on his program, well, not quite sure what that was all about, but oh, on the Messiah stuff. Yeah, you know, I'm glad, yeah. you, Michael. Yeah, I'm glad you're I, picking I up on. It up because a lot of uh, Christians and theologians argue the case for Jesus as not only a real person, but also the Son of God, crucified, resurrected, and so on. Uh, if if the evidence was so good, why why don't Jews accept him? I mean, they accept right. same God, the God of Abraham, Yahweh, and they accept Jesus is a real person. Why don't they accept and that he was crucified because Romans crucified everybody. That's no surprise. But that he was resurrected. Okay. So if the, if the evidence for this is so good, why don't Jews accept it? That was my, my question for Ben. And that's what I was alluding to. And you picked up immediately on that. I'm glad you have that intuition there, Michael. Well, um, it's a good question. Uh, I, I ask for your listeners. If they're Christian, they accept, if you, if your listeners accept Jesus as the savior because he was resurrected, then, and you think the evidence is, I mean, if it's one, it's one thing if you say, well, this is just an article of faith for me. It's what I believe is part of my religion. I, I'm not claiming I can prove it. Okay, fine. But if you say, look, it, it really happened. It's really true. And we have evidence for it. Then why don't Jews accept it? Cause you know, the Jewish faith is, you know, it's filled with people that are exceptionally smart, well-read, deeply ensconced in the Bible, and so on. They and they don't accept Jesus as the Savior. So why not? Correct. And when you were going into evolution with him, I'm surprised he didn't bring up the classic "Were you there?" line. I was only waiting oh, for that. Oh yeah, yeah. I don't think Ben goes. I don't think he's a young Earth creationist at all. And that would be a complete rejection of science. Because, you know, much of science is not um, empirical lab experiments that you can see. Much of it is historical. Right. Historical geology, for example, cosmology, astronomy, archaeology, paleontology, historical geology, I think I mentioned. These these are all things that already happened, but you can infer from the past. In, in the same way we know the Civil War happened, we know the Holocaust happened, and so on. How do you know? Well, because... We have techniques of analyzing evidence from that. And anyway, so that's, that, that, that's right. We, we, we don't have to have been there to see the creation to know what happened. Yeah. I mean, I, I like to joke around with different people out there and kind of twist this one up every now and then, but I give the example of, um, I wasn't there when the Titanic sunk, but you know, <laughs> right. Yeah. You know what I'm talking about? Yeah. I like to, yeah, I like to throw that one in there for a joke. But it's still there at the bottom of the ocean. <laughs> That's right. And uh, Michael, you talk a lot uh, about various things that I talk about on, on a daily basis here when I do this program in your book, Heavens on Earth. And uh, one of the things I did want to mention in regards to UFOs and abductions and things people uh, claim to have seen, um, lots of people out there make this claim. And it makes me think, I wonder what truly is causing this sort of phenomenon because I, I can't 
just think, well, all these people are just crazy. There's got to be something more to it. What, are you, you're talking about near-death experiences? No. It, well, oh. in terms of UFOs and abductions. Oh, UFOs so. and that kind of stuff, right? No. Yeah. Uh, no, the, pe- the people that experience these things, um, they're not crazy, no. Uh, um, and it, But we have to take them case by case. We should distinguish between UFO sightings. I've had them. Almost everybody's seen something in the sky they can't right. explain. Right, sure. Uh, versus alien abduction experiences which almost always happen at night when the person's asleep. This is called sleep paralysis. You wake up and you feel like you can't move, like you're paralyzed. And in part, it's because you're in this kind of uh, waking dream state in which your body is still super uh, relaxed because that you know, your brain basically shuts your body down so you don't sleepwalk when you're sleeping. And so the, when you're lying prone on your back there on a soft mattress, it kind of feels like you're floating or flying or, or, and you can't move that, that, that's normal. Uh, what alien abductions, abductees experience is something else called sleep paralysis in which they also have a sense presence that somebody's in the room with them. Now, these used to be described in Middle Ages and early modern period as as demonic forces. These were succubi and succubi harassing people in their beds at night. It was Satan at work. And this was considered evidence for Satan or uh, for demonic possession and so forth. Uh, Now, you know, in the 20th century, it became alien abductions because the brain experiences that people have uh, are, are real. And what you call it or how you describe it or the narrative that you write about it or talk about it is uh, very much influenced by the culture in which you're raised. So we don't live in a demon-haunted world like people did in the Middle Ages. We live in an alien-haunted world you know, of science fiction and Star Wars and Star Trek and and real space exploration and, and so on. And the aliens used to look like all different kinds of shapes and sizes. But after television and films started to um, coalesce around a certain alien archetype, you know, large head, emaciated body, almond-shaped eyes, and no ears, and, and so on, um, then they all started to look like that. So that tells us that these are people having uh, weird dreams and they're inculcating into their memories and their minds, their imaginations, images from pop culture. Right. And lots of people out there for sure wholeheartedly believe what they're experiencing is real. And perhaps, oh, sure. it, yeah, perhaps sure. it is I, real I say, in their I minds. Tell, I, I'm fond of saying the experiences people have are real. The question is what, what do they represent? Correct. Yes. And uh, furthermore, I must say here in 2018, there are individuals out there who believe in the flat earth. Can you believe that, Mr. Schirmer? <laughs> that really is hard to believe. Holy no. hell. I mean, some of, most of it is just clickbait stuff just for fun. I think there's a few people that really believe it. Um, it's readily debunked. Uh, we have, go to skeptic.com and type in flat earth. We have a whole thorough, um, debunking them, you know, just claim by claim. Here's what the flat earthers say. Here's why we know they're wrong. And that's, that's the way to handle it, I think. And by the way, we we really know the earth is spherical for for thousands of years. When Columbus sailed, he didn't think the earth was flat. He, he, they all knew it was round. The only thing he's, the question yes. was, is how big is it? That's actually the litmus test that I use here on the program when I'm talking to several guests. What's that? I say, do you believe in the flat earth theory? Uh, okay. <laughs> right. That's the, that's the, the that's great litmus, litmus test right. here. Yes. You got to remember that one, Michael. Pull that one up every now and then. Okay. Keep that one in your back pocket. And um, furthermore, to add just quickly here, can you believe that there's actually conventions for uh, the flatter theory? Um, what do you mean? 
there's actually conventions set up around the world for for this sort of thing. Where oh, conventions, yes, yeah. yes, yes sorry, uh, yeah, like in people gathering, yeah, right. Oh, I know, I know. There was one wow. held just recently uh, that, that I'm afraid I missed. You should have gone <laughs> and gave a little yeah. little lecture there. That would have been great. Um, well, they didn't invite me, and they're not likely to invite me. But you know, they they really need someone just. Uh, a round earther. A round earther, yes. <laughs> and uh, to wrap up the whole UFO abduction thing, um, I, I've interviewed lots of individuals here who claim to have been abducted, Michael. And many of them tell me that they've communicated with these entities telepathically. And some of the messages that they've received, uh, to me, it, they come across very Eastern traditional and you kind of talk a little bit about that in your book as well. Um, it, it always seems like save the planet and be good to each other. And it, it's kind of like common sense. <laughs> right. You know what I'm saying? Right. Love one another. Yeah. That yeah. sort of thing. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Very <laughs> new age. Oh, I know. Yeah. So the, the messages people get from psychics and astrologers and aliens and so on, they're always these sort of mundane generalities, you know, if, if only a psychic would have told us, you know, where is Osama bin Laden hiding? Which cave is he in so we can go get him? You know, they're, they're, they're fond of telling us the love life of Jennifer Aniston and Brad Pitt, but, but they, and they know great details about celebrities, but they, they can't seem to find like where, where the North Koreans are hiding their nukes. Uh, you know, they, they can't seem right. to get that information. Yes. Isn't that odd? Well, it's not odd because it's it's baloney because <laughs> they can't actually do anything. Uh, but yeah, that that would be a, a litmus test. Well, that, that would be my litmus test. Tell me yes. where the North Koreans are hiding their nukes. <laughs> well, and, well, Michael, you you got to admit, um, Dennis Rodman did save the planet once again. That's right. Yeah. Well, my 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 one thing about Dennis Rodman is he mm-hmm. lives in Los Angeles, so which is where I'm at here in Southern California. So I figured. If, uh, you know, Kim Jong-un and him are, are buddies, maybe the North Koreans won't nuke L.A. and I'll be okay. <laughs> I know. that That's a positive. Yep, totally. Now we only have to worry about earthquakes out here. That's it. Yep. Earthquakes and fires and floods. Right. And, Michael, by the way, before I forget, do you have anything new coming out, any new uh, books in the works? Um, well, I'm trying to decide what to write next. You know, The Heavens on Earth was my 13th book. And uh, so I'm just kind of ruminating on what I should write next. My next big project will probably be television series based on the moral arc. It's something I'm working on now, a script for that, uh, four-part, five-part perhaps, one-hour each documentary series um, for national television, basically tracking moral progress, how, how things have been getting better. I think it's important to to remember that what life used to be like a thousand years ago, 500 years ago, even a hundred years ago or 50 years ago of how much better it is now than it's ever been. I mean, just think of the dentistry or the medicine a thousand years ago or 500 years ago or how many people died violently centuries ago or what, you know, we, we bemoan the, you know, the slightest racist tweet by a drunken celebrity at two in the morning like Roseanne and, and, and everybody loses their minds. Well, just think how people used to talk about blacks and Jews and women, say, 50 years ago or 100 years ago. And, you know, it's, it's, things are so much better today, even though it's not True. perfect. Uh, you know, so that's my next project, I think, is to really try to bring that home to people. To yeah, let's talk a little bit about society right now. 
Um, where exactly do you see things going, Michael? Do you think perhaps society has dropped a few IQ points over the past couple of years? <laughs> no, actually, well, there's two, two ways to think about this. First, there is something called the Flynn effect. Uh, James Flynn is a psychologist from New Zealand who discovered his eponymous effect by looking at IQ scores over the last century. And basically the test companies that make these IQ tests, they've had to renorm them about every decade or so because people are getting better at these tests. Now, it's not the portions of the test that you can study for, like vocabulary or, or algebra or something like that. These are the um, sort of symbolic or abstract reasoning portions of the test. And IQ scores have been going up about three points every decade. So that's a, that's a, you know, in, in, the, in terms of a, that's a step forward of, of a century, that's Q points. That's two standard deviations. That would put, you know, put you or I, if we were at a hundred, it, it jumped to 130, that'd put us at the, you know, sort of above sort of Harvard level student IQ. Um, and, and that's the average. So there's something going on there that no one knows for sure, but we think it has to do with the entire culture shifting from agriculture to industry to now digital and information and that we're getting better at abstract reasoning. Just, just think of like kids playing video games. You know, they're manipulating symbols and, and they're doing a lot of abstract reasoning in their head just to navigate these games. And that, you know, in general, just people surfing the internet and so on, all that requires a lot of Rapid, um, uh, sort of, you know, symbolic type, type thinking. So there is that. The, the other aspect is, is, uh, what makes it seem worse is social media. You know, it's sort of the dumbing down of, of America. It, if you, if you, if you're on social media, it certainly seems like you know, things are dumb and getting dumber. Um, but, but in fact, it's just a tool like a printing press. It's well, that's just, just a, a, by the way, that's just a, a small percentage of the pie. I think so. Yeah. Yes, I, I, I do. I mean, the New York Times is still around. The Wall Street Journal is still around. They have fact checkers. They have editors. You know, the, the, the writing is high quality. The research, the fact checking is there. Um, you know, mainstream media is still pretty good. The big boys. Um, you know, and, and if you think one's more biased than the other, well, you know, they just, just read the other one then. Or That's right. Read, or read both of them. So, um, but in, in, in the general, um, Take home, I think, is follow the trend lines, not the headlines. If you just watch the headlines every night, it seems like things are bad and getting worse. If you follow the trend lines, like I mentioned earlier, last 50 years, 100 years, 500 years, you know, things are much, much better. I mean, that, you know, everyone talks about Kim Jong-un. He's like the only dictator. Well, maybe there's one or two others, uh, dictator in the world, you know, uh, but, but a hundred years ago, you know, every other political leader was a dictator like Kim Jong-un and that the American democratic model was very rare. Now there's about a hundred and I think last count was 122 liberal democracies in, in the world. There used to be you know, 50 years ago, just like a dozen. So, you know, that kind of thing is getting much better. By the way, there's been lots of debate over gun control. We, we've seen countless school shootings uh, just this year and last year alone. What are your opinions on all of that? Why are these things occurring so often? Yeah, I used to be against gun control because I was a libertarian freedom guy. You know, people let people do whatever they want. I think we need some controls. I mean, obviously, we don't already don't allow people to have guided missiles and right. and surface-to-air missiles and nuclear weapons and things like that. So we already do have uh, gun controls, and and you know, you cannot legally own a machine gun, for example. That's been illegal since the 1930s when the mob started using them, and and even conservatives and hardcore NRA supporters will say, yeah, yeah, no machine guns. You know, so obviously, we it, the question is, where do we draw the 
the line. And in terms of school shootings, uh, there's nothing anyone has proposed that will have any effect on on that on school shootings because they're they're so random. I mean, it seems like they're in the news a lot, um, but of course, no one sends a camera crew to an elementary school and, and reports that you know yet another day without a school shooting will be back tomorrow. No, we only rush to the ones where uh, there are school shootings, so it seems like. They're much worse than they are. And of course, compared to say 50 years ago, yes, there's more school shootings. Part of the problem is the naming and identifying and showing the picture of the, um, the perpetrator. And that's a bad idea. I think the media, the media already has protocols about not, uh, giving the names of say, uh, children who have been molested. They don't show their pictures. They blur them out or they don't give their names. Rape victims, for example, they protect their identity. We already do that uh, for good reasons, and we should do that with the school shooters because every one of them now says, I wanted to beat the other guys and kill more kids yeah. than they had killed. So that's that's a better solution than, say, some of these gun control measures, right. which will have no effect on school shootings. Now, what they could do is help reduce the carnage, the overall numbers of things like domestic violence shootings. Like most women that are killed – are killed by an intimate partner and usually and more often than not with a gun. And so violence in intimate partnerships when the guy already has a restraining order, there are laws about that. If you have a restraining order, you cannot buy a gun. So we need to, you know, enforce laws like that that are already in place. Um, and, you know, so background checks for, you know, people that are mentally ill. Yes, they should not have a gun. Uh, and just enforcing those sorts of things that are already on the books, I think, would help I, in terms of the overall carnage, you know, 20,000 people a year or so. And, and, no, no, it's less. It's about 30,000 total. But if you take suicides out of it, because we're just talking about homicides and school shootings and things like that, it's down to less than 20,000 a year. If you could, it, it, we're not going to reduce that greatly with gun control measures because there are already over 300 million guns in America. So even if we stopped all production tomorrow, there's still 300 million guns floating around, actually more than that. And, and so if somebody wants a gun because they want they're gonna to get one. somebody, they're going to get a gun. Yeah. People and, get what you know, they we're, want. We're a country of, of civil liberties and rights and we're not going to become Nazi Germany where you go door to door and take every gun away. If, if anyone attempted to do that, any government agency attempted to take people's guns away, we're going to have a Waco every weekend. You know, and that's just that's intolerable. So I really don't have a good solution to the, you know, the mass homicide problem that we we are facing compared to other countries. Uh, I, there's just no solution. There's no good solution. Right. There really isn't no one good answer. Just like there is for everything out there. There there always seems to be a magnitude of how to answer each solution out there. And one of the things you reminded me of is Anthony Bourdain. By the way, we, we've seen a string of celebrity suicides. Yeah, so I have a uh, an article I'm researching now for Scientific American on why people kill themselves, and we don't know. <laughs> I mean, I've talked to the world's leading experts on psychologists that study suicide. This is what they do, and they say, we don't know. Even – this is the free thing – the people themselves who commit suicide and, and, and then they survive, they didn't know they were going to do it. Like that, they got up that morning and just like, okay, today is the day. 
And it's not like something they were planning that was predictable. I mean, obviously depression is a big part of it, but, but lots of people suffer from depression and never kill themselves or even try to. So even as a predictor, severe depression is not very good. And beyond that, you know, too much money, not enough money. Uh, you know, oh, we worked in the TV industry. It's so shallow. No, this has nothing. This is completely meaningless explanations. For any of these uh, people, and, I, I uh, tend to believe you know, so. I tend to believe so, and I'm not sure if you're aware of this, but the whole conspiracy angle surrounding his death has just been uh, oh yeah, that's wildfire. crazy. Hillary, Hillary did it. Yes, yeah. <laughs> so you don't you don't believe the conspiracy theories, Michael? That <laughs> he was um, about to that he was whacked. <laughs> yeah, he was about to expose elite pedophiles. <laughs> right. You're not buying that. No, not buying it. No, not buying no. it. I'm not a Hillary fan, but she's not a mass murderer. I, I, you know, the, I heard that almost immediately after his death. I knew people were just so into this and they were emailing me and texting me. Did you hear so and so? Hillary did. I'm, I'm just like, Oh my God. Yep. It doesn't take long for any of these things to. Not everything is a conspiracy, by the way, for those out there listening. They're, they're perfectly great explanations for a lot of these things out there. And some people just have these uh, blind spots in their logic. Well, it's true. The problem with conspiracy theories, I've written a lot about this. It's a pretty interesting topic is this is not like you know, ESP, paranormal, perpetual motion machines, you know, they can't be true. Uh, conspiracies do happen. Uh, I mean, you know, Watergate was a conspiracy. Right. Lincoln was assassinated yeah, by a These conspiracy. things do happen, but not, they do there's happen. some people, they really do believe that everything is a conspiracy. And for, maybe, maybe perhaps for them, this is their flat earth. In a way, yes. In, in, in part, it's, there's a lot of psychological research on conspiracy theory believers. That is, they, right. they tend to think that, first of all, they tend to be people not in power. So they always think somebody else has the power that I don't have and corporations, government agencies, things like that. Uh, that when you actually get on the inside and you work there and see how the sausages are made, you realize, okay, these people, they're incompetent. They don't know what they're doing. They can't run the world. Uh, that's just not how the world works. But we have this uh, notion that that, you know, that nothing happens by chance. So our intuitions are very poor at understanding the law of large numbers, probability, statistics, randomness. You know, much of what happens in the world is random, random to our minds. We just can't know why things happen. So it's hard to grasp that, you know, like what, what, why gas prices go up or down, why the economy is sound or it's not. You know, the, these things have a life of their own that no one really can control. Uh, and so we, but, but, but when it affects the person, we feel like, well, I can't control this. I don't have any power. Somebody else is doing it. So everything happens for a reason is a very common explanation. No, no, no. Most things happen for no reason at all. It's just randomness. And, uh, you know, it's like simple statistical, um, examples are like hot hands in basketball. You know, you know, we see, we tend to notice streaks, winning streaks, losing streaks, mostly winning streaks, hot hands. And, but statistically, when you crunch the numbers, uh, there's nothing unusual happening there beyond what you'd expect from the random uh, ups and downs of any given complex system like that. And so, but our mind uh, puts patterns on it and thinks there's a pattern there. Right. Our and, minds uh, are, it works almost the same way. Like those who see images in clouds or inanimate objects. Oh my goodness, a dog. Oh yeah, that's uh, my dog Hitch, named after Christopher Hitchens. Ah, like nice. Hitchens, yeah. He's a big chocolate lab here. Yeah, he's protecting us here. So maybe, oh, that's maybe this is the one, the one person that wants to whack me. <laughs> ah, ha, ha. Yeah, that's uh, anthropomorphizing, right? 
That's right, to a certain extent. I call this patternicity, the tendency to find meaningful patterns in random noise. Uh, we all do it. You know, the face of Jesus in the tortilla, the there you go. Yes. side of a building, you know, <laughs> cloud, you know, the dog in the cloud, that kind of thing. You know, we find these patterns. The question is, are they real or not? Now, some patterns are real, sometimes they're not. That's what we need science for. But generally for conspiracy theories, they're almost never true. Very rare. You know, Princess Di was murdered, whatever. These things are just, you know, just crazy. But people believe them because they're easy, it's easy to put together three or four data points. And you know, how do you explain this, 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 and this? There must be something behind it. No, actually randomness explains it. You know, that That's there's right. always these kind of weird anomalies that happen when you notice it. My favorite example of this is from the JFK assassination when um, there's a, in the Zabruta film, you can see this guy standing there with an umbrella. Uh, on the umbrella the man, yes. Yeah, the umbrella man. And it's like, but it was a clear sunny day. Why would he have an umbrella? And it took decades before this guy was found. And he came out and said, I had an umbrella because that was a, a, a sign of protesting the president that goes all the way back to Chamberlain. Um, that prime minister Neville Chamberlain, when he returned from Czechoslovakia meeting with Hitler or uh, meeting with Hitler in, in Berlin over Czechoslovakia and, you know, Defeer, he, he promised he would not take another piece of uh, Europe and, and, you know, here's the paper anyway. So Ch- Chamberlain had a, his umbrella there. He's holding his umbrella. So that became a symbol of protesting, um, you know, a, a politician. So this guy was out there protesting Kennedy with his umbrella. But, you know, that's conspiracy theorists. You know, they had, oh, the umbrella was an actually, it was a gun and he was, was the guy gun, that yes. shot Kennedy. <laughs> <laughs> I've heard so many JFK conspiracies. Uh, I'm not surprised by any of them. Lots of good, good information, however, that comes out from that. And we still don't have the full story yet. Um, still well, I, I, there mm-hmm. I, I think I would disagree with you. I think we know Oswald did it and he acted alone. You know, the full story, well, of course, there's always things we can't explain. There's lots of things, anomalies around 9-11 that we can't explain. But it, it's a, you know, it's a monumental event. And after, after the fact, you look back and you, and you look for little details you can't explain. But that would be true for anything that happens anywhere in the world on any given day. You know, there's some little weird things associated with it. You can't explain it. What does it mean? Nothing. I can't argue with that. That's, that's, that's a fact there. And one thing I will say about the uh, Clintons, however, if you recall back in Mena, Arkansas, uh, Bill Clinton, he had uh, that whole thing with, with the cocaine smuggling, if you remember. So, yeah, conspiracies uh, do do tend to happen every now and then. I mean, we it, it's it's fine to criticize politicians, but don't give them more power than than, than they actually have. Most politicians can't do anything about the That's economy. Yes. There's very little they can do about other political leaders like Putin or Kim Jong Un. Really, there's very little uh, any president can do. But we, because we're on the outside, we're not sitting there in the Oval Office watching, you know, the sausage being made. And it just seems like, you know, they're plotting. What this a crazy gig, though, right? Why? Why would any, anyone want to be the president? Why would anyone? I, 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 it's my God. You know, first of all, half the country hates you the moment you announce. Exactly. And then half the people in your own party hate you because they want the other guy. Right. And then even when you get elected, you know, it's like almost everybody hates you for something you did. You know, and it's it's like so. For example, when Clinton didn't intervene in. Uh, Rwanda and the genocide happened. You know, he gets blamed for not intervening. So he intervenes in Kosovo during the civil war and then he's blamed for, you know, who do you think you are? The America thinks they're the world's police. You just stay out of other people's business. Well, okay. Which is it? You <laughs> so, can't you please know. everyone. That's, that's the problem. 
And to to wrap up the whole conspiracy angle, there's one more individual out there uh, by the name of Alex Jones. Any any opinion on oh, Alex yeah, out Alex there? Alex Jones, yes, he's quite the character. I'm not 100 percent convinced that he's not just an actor. He's a he's a gimmick. It's it's just a you know performance art. I don't know. Uh, one of the most amusing things, however, I've ever seen is his several hour uh, performance on call it that on uh, the Joe Rogan experience. Joe Rogan is a great guy. He's a friend of mine, and I've been on the show four times. And, yeah, I've seen you and, on there. Yeah, and he got Alex. He offered Alex some uh, whiskey, and then they lit up a joint. And That's right. Alex was off and running about the interdimensional alien <laughs> child molesters. <laughs> oh my! It was really funny. Yeah, he went down that rabbit hole. Indeed, I'm not quite sure what uh, made him go down that route during that uh, publication there, but that was very interesting to watch. Know, and it's troubling that people take him seriously because, you know, things like the Sandy Hook shooting was, you know, orchestrated by the Obama administration and these child actors and on and on and on. I mean, it's just insane that anybody could listen to that and believe it. But then again, a guy showed up at that pizza place thinking that was that Hillary was running a child molestation ring in the back of the pizza joint. Yeah, this can be dangerous for some individuals. Yeah. That's yeah, why I, I brought a gun. Yeah, that yeah, was not good. Th- this is why I, I wonder about you sometimes, Michael. I, I have to say there's lots of people who get worked up very easily over some of the things that we're discussing. So uh, you're someone who's so out there. In the public, I, I could just imagine that perhaps one day someone might go crazy on you. Hopefully not. <laughs> I hope not. Uh, but like even my latest book, Heavens on Earth, you know, if you're a believer, you're, most of your audience, I guess, is a Christian. Uh, so I assume they believe in an afterlife. Look, I, no one knows for sure. This is the conclusion of my book. And that in, in a way doesn't matter uh, because we don't live in the afterlife. We live in this life. We don't live in the hereafter. We live in the here and now. So whether there's an afterlife or not, you really should make the most of this life. That is, love the people that uh, you love uh, and cherish every day. You know, make make live every day like this is it. This is the last. This could be the last day I have. I could be smacked by a car tomorrow. Who knows? Exactly. And so I, I better really be super nice to the people I encounter when I'm at the Starbucks or on my dog walk or whatever. You know, just it it, it makes every day meaningful. And if it turns out that you know when I close my eyes the last time here and I wake up and. I'm in this other place, whatever that would be. And there's my parents and my friend Stephen Jay Gould and Carl Sagan, and Isaac Asimov and all these people I knew and, and loved and, 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 and admired. And there they are. Well, okay, fine. Uh, you know, but I, 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 I think worrying about it too much is a mistake. You're going to miss out so on, too. on this life. Yeah. And I, I've heard you say that life itself is the reward. And I agree. That, that's right. It's, it's a matter of scale. I call this, uh, Alvy's error. Alvy is Alvy Singer, Woody Allen's character in, in, uh, Annie Hall. Right. Where he has that flashback as a child where he won't do his homework. His mom takes him to the psychiatrist. You know, Alvy, why won't you do your homework? The universe is expanding. The universe is expanding. Yes, the universe is everything that there is. And if it's expanding one day, it's going to blow up. And so none of this matters that, uh, we're doing now. And his mother yells at him, what's the universe got to do with it? We live in Brooklyn. Brooklyn's not expanding. You gotta do your homework. And, and that's right. We, you know, we live in a world that's it's not expanding. You know, it's here we are and it's meaningful because we make it meaningful. That's true. And I think lots of people forget about that sometimes. They're thinking uh, about the afterlife without thinking about the now. That's right. Yeah. yeah. You, you might miss and the bigger case, picture. You should be good for goodness sake, not because you think you get to go to heaven or anything like that. None of that. That, that's not the reason to be, to be good and moral. You should do it for its own sake. Just, just, just because that's the right thing to do. 
Yes, and then, of course, that brings me back to the whole uh, debate issue when I've seen I've seen countless debates. I've, I've seen you debate a few people, and I've noticed lots of uh, Christians or, or pastors out there, they'll go back and ask, how does one define morality? And if you could have such without... Uh, without having, you know, the whole Bible, uh, dogma attached to that. Um, we see this all the time and, um, I've, I've had talks with, with different pastors out there and I, I've seen them get very angry once I question why they're driving such a fancy car and everyone else is, <laughs> right. yeah, everyone else is driving a beat up car. I, I ask, why is that? Can you answer that question for me, sir? Um, yeah, they don't you, like when- that. When did Jesus become a conservative, a right. Republican? I mean, does that know, bother you, Michael? Have you ever, yeah, it does. have yes, you ever thought course. about that? The, have yeah, you ever seen have. some of these pastors, the amount of money they rake in? It's terrible. Holy I mean, hell. it's embarrassing. I'd be embarrassed if I was a Christian. I mean, I met and spent some time with uh, Rick Warren, uh, you know, of the mega church in, in uh, Irvine. And, you know, he made a gazillion dollars on that book, Purpose Driven Life. Now, I didn't get anything. I read the book. I didn't get anything out of it. It didn't do anything for me. Uh, but he's a super nice guy and he, and he, you know, he wears kind of, you know, uh, worn out jeans and a, and an old jacket. And, and, you know, he could, he could afford a private jet probably with the money he made on that book. Most but he gets most of it away. And, you know, and it's like, yeah, no, and he cares about poor people and hungry people and, you know, people that need, that really need help. And, you know, that to me, the whole prosperity gospel of people like Joel Olstein, it's like, Jesus, <laughs> literally Jesus, you know, what would he say? Uh, I mean, if you read, you know, the, the Sermon on the Mount, I've read all this stuff. I took a whole course in the life of Jesus at Pepperdine. And uh, this is not what it was all about. You know, this is, yeah, so I, th- I think a lot of Christians have, have gone off, gone down the wrong path with that. Um, I mean, there's, there's nothing wrong from a sort of a capitalist perspective, nothing wrong with making money, but that's not the point. Yeah, not at all. I don't, I don't see, um, that sort of thing being an issue where, um, you see these people making money off of others' ignorances, but you, it does sort of bother me in a way where it's, they're taking advantage of their own. A flock, as they say. Yep. Well, of course, the, you know, the, the you know, the, the prosperity gospel people, the te- the televangelists that are, you know, raking money from super poor people, you know, that's just not, not right. Um, but, but, but even the prosperity gospel, again, you know, that, that's, that's not the point of Christianity. I mean, if you want to go to a, you know, a pro-capitalist type, uh, social group or, you know, something like that where you, you talk about making money that's fine but you don't think of religion as tied up in that i know it's quite terrible and of course that really does make people a little upset once they're heavily in into their religion and you tell them that they they get very angry with you yep yep that's right so by the way have you ever got it got into it with any uh scientologist out there oh yes i know uh, some Scientologists, I know some ex-Scientologists, and uh, I've gone to v- probably a dozen different Scientology offices. I know all about it. Yeah, yeah, it's you know it's something That's a like weird a cult. One. You know, it's something like a cult in the sense that uh, you know they're heavily focused on money, taking you know getting as much money as they can from their members. I have met people that have been helped by them. I met Isaac Hayes, the Famous singer and, uh, South Park voice, uh, he was chef on South Park. He famously won a Grammy award for, uh, theme from Shaft. Right, right. Back in the seventies, big megastar and he lost everything. 
Uh, and then, you know, we sorted down and out and Scientology got him off drugs and alcohol and he put his life back together and that's when he made his second comeback. He's deceased now, but, um, you know, I met him and asked him what he got out of Scientology and that was it. It's like they helped me. It's like, okay, you know, I, I, I never, uh, I'm never bothered by groups of any kind that really help people. Uh, it's, but when it turns to like bilking old people out of money and things like that, people that can't afford it, you know, that to me is immoral. Yeah, that's just wrong. I'm not quite sure how they could sleep at night. Right. Well, they're not being very Christian. Let's put it that way. <laughs> I know, right? That's very anti-Christian. Yeah. And Michael, I do want to thank you very much for being a part of the program. I do not want to hold you up for the rest of your day here. Well, thanks for having me. I appreciate it, Michael. Yeah, it's been a fun, a fun uh, discussion here. I'm going to have to bring you back on uh, in due time. We'll do that. All right, Michael, it was fantastic talking to you finally. Uh, go ahead and plug anything you'd like if there's any events perhaps that you'll be lecturing at, uh, anything of that nature. Oh, well, um, I think um, the easiest thing is my webpage, michaelshermer.com or skeptic.com, where you go to Scientific American and see all my columns there, all 200 of them. And, uh, yeah, that's kind of the best way to access my, my writings and, and what I do. Very nice. Well, Michael, thank you so much. And remember, Jesus does love you still. Okay, well, <laughs> all right. If he's up there uh, watching out for me, just know that, uh, hey, I have an open mind. Uh, I'm open to whatever it is you want to uh, tell me about, or I'll see you in the next life if that's the case. I'm an agnostic atheist, by the way, but I like to okay. keep, I like to keep <laughs> Jesus in my back pocket. I see. Yeah, just in case. <laughs> yeah, you never know when you might have to bring him up. That's right. Yes, sir. <laughs> All, All right, Michael. Michael take care. Right. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. And that was Mr. Michael Shermer. Great, great guy. And in conclusion, in my final word here, I must say, it doesn't matter what race or gender you are or what your religious background is, just keep in mind that we are all one here. And if you are listening to this, keep in mind every Saturday night at 8 p.m. Pacific Standard Time, 11 p.m. Eastern Time, I'm live right here on the TuneIn Radio app. Just search End of Days and you'll find this program. And if you enjoyed this afternoon's program here, keep in mind, if you want to help, go to michaeldeacon.com and donate a few dollars. I profoundly appreciate it. I'm Michael Deacon. Thank you for listening. And with that said, the world is a mysterious place and life itself is a mystery. Until next time, good night, everybody. In the hardest part now. I'm not that way. I'm a Christian. Oh, my. Yeah. Not about a bad yeah. school. Not about a bad school. <laughs> you mentioned the Illuminati, and we've got to go into behind the fence, but the Illuminati certainly is part of the whole thing. But the top members of the Illuminati are open pushers. I could tell that all the mainstream media outlets were giving me like bullshit. Like, you can just see it. It's clear. <laughs> How appropriate. I wish I could be in that ring with Hogan right now. It's crazy. I had no idea this shit existed before 726. It's the simplest shit. You go in there, you see the button, then you got a nickel about it. You know, you can I'll bring it by you. That's what I want. Just for what it's worth, I want to put in my defense to tell you both that you have one of the most incredibly well-rounded shows. Introducing the greatest tag team on the radio. Guess what, motherfuckers?
Victory.